Brent. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And we're the best, man. What? Best man is a wonderful Oh! 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 That's actually good if I would have gotten it. <laughs> it's late, folks. <laughs> it's really late. We just watched Free Willy <laughs> instead of recording. And now we're going to record, even though, like, normally I'm in bed by now. <laughs> but life's busy, and we got to get this done. That's true. I mean, sometimes you got more work than it seems you have time to do it in. You're just trying to make ends meet. And that, I think, is something from our our modern day that people in the past didn't have to deal with. Well, let me tell you. Yeah? You have a lot to learn. Oh, what are you going to teach me? Uh, Well, I I think we need to watch another movie right now before we do this episode. And that is called Newsies. (laughs) Okay, but it will be tomorrow. And then we'll record. (laughs) It will technically be tomorrow if we do that. Yeah, it will. It will. So, yes, we are are, uh, approaching this episode in a way like we did our Sound of Music episode before. Mm -hmm. Uh, This time we are going to be tackling a different musical, and that is Newsies. Yeah, uh, originally a film. Originally a film. I I guess I'm taking your facts away from you now. Yeah. And eventually a Broadway musical. But also based on a historical event. Yes. There, so there was an actual newsboy strike. Yes. All right. And and we're going to talk a little bit about the film. And uh, because the film now is like decades old. <laughs> um, it is history. In we can sense, talk about yes. that. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, for... Those uh, who don't know Newsies, I'm ashamed of you, first off, but Newsies was originally a 1992 film musical, and in 2011 it was made into a stage version. Uh, It is about the 1899 strike of the Newsboys of New York City. Uh, It is all inspired by true events, but it takes a ton of liberties. Yeah. But it's still real events. Um, one thing with this subject is that there's not as much recorded history as, say, there was about the Von Trapp family singers, because no one wrote a memoir. Yeah. Okay. All, all these illiterate street urchins didn't uh, self-publish. Yeah, and that's going to become very obvious when we get to a certain part of this episode. So we're going to start at the very beginning. That It's a completely <laughs> different... Show. It bugs you so much every time. I don't want to do catchphrases. <laughs> we're not starting really at the beginning, because we're not talking about the history first. We're talking about the movie first. So it was a lie. <laughs> so the movie was produced by Walt Disney Pictures, mm-hmm. uh, and it was directed by Kenny Ortega. This was his directing debut, mm-hmm. uh, but he would later go on to make Hocus Pocus. Uh, <laughs> he did right. all the high school musical movies. He did, he did the, something the very recently. The current Descendants movies. He also did the 2016 Rocky Horror Picture Show That's TV special. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 Uh, before, oh, 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 oh. He also did one episode of Second Noah, another show that I'm pretty sure I'm the only person that watched. But that is a, a, a show that had James Marsden back in his little itty bitty days. Well, I mean, he was still, like, 20 or something, but... So, did you watch it because you were such a big Kenny Ortega fan? 
It was about like a family that adopted a bunch of kids and they had like an animal rescue. Well, that sounds sweet. All yeah, right. yeah, it was pretty good. It did not last more like even a whole season, but it was pretty good. So before that, uh, fun f- Kenny Ortega was uh, known for his choreography. I mean, he still was, but he did like Xanadu and Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller Day Off and Dirty Dancing, Madonna's Material Girl. Those are all like his dance moves in wow, those things. Yeah, he he's had quite a career. So yeah, so he directed it. It was his first directing film. Uh, it was produced by uh, Michael Fennell, who did the uh, produce the Gremlins. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Bob Sudiker. I don't, I don't really know how to say that one. But um, and also uh, Nani White, and they have credits for doing screenplays for stuff like Anastasia and Tarzan, and some of the writing for Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Lion King. So um, they, they were house folks. Yeah, yeah. Except uh, Anastasia is not. Well, I mean, Anastasia was pretty clearly uh, Don Bluth trying to be as Disney as he could. So, of course, so he good. he went to their staff. Um, and the music was by Ellen Minkin, uh, who's done everything. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Pocahontas, Hunchback, Hercules, Enchanted Tangled. He's He is working on the Tangled series right now. Really? They got him, too, yeah. Um, so there's two places right now you can hear Alan Menken, in the theaters and on the small screen. Yeah. How about it? Uh, so Menken was known for collaborating with Howard Ashman. Um, he died. Yeah, he was, uh, when they started working on this film, he was too sick from AIDS complications, and he died about a year before the film came out. So he was ended up collaborating with uh, Jack Feldman on the lyrics. Okay. Um, Am I supposed to know Jack Feldman from something? Uh. He was involved in, like, some of the music for, like, Thumbelina and, like, those types of uh, animated films. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, his his Wikipedia page is really sad if you go look at that. <laughs> because it's just, like, them... Someone, like, listed, like, the things that award where it's, like, the worst of the oh, worst. The Razzies? The Razzies. It's, like, a nomination for something in Newsies and a nomination for something in Thumbelina and... And then, wait, he went on to win the Tony for Newsies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like... There you go. (laughs) My, how times change. Right? It's very... That's a big thing we're going to get to shortly, too. So the movie starred uh, Christian Bale. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, ask him about it. Something he he would love to forget, because he absolutely hates the fact that he was in this movie, and I'm very upset about that, (laughs) because... Christian Bale. There's a lot of other things you've made you should hate more. <laughs> so Christian Bale was like played like Jack Kelly, who was supposed to be like the Newsies leader for mm-hmm. the strike. It also starred uh, uh, David Moscow, who went on to do some stuff, but he's like, not famous. He was dating like Kerry Washington. I think it was. I read he was like super famous for dating someone. I, I, that's more than I can say, so. Uh, had Robert Duvall as Joseph Pulitzer. He uh, was great. And Margaret as Meta Lark, uh, Larkson. And uh, Aaron Lore as Mush. Now what? This, I had read this before and I forgot about it. So the guy who played Mush played Dean Portman in The Mighty Ducks. He was one of the Smash Brothers. <laughs> and, and, uh, and. Darling, darling. Huh. The Bash Brothers. Bash Brothers. I said, I wrote the wrong thing. <laughs> Smash Bash. Smash Brothers is a wonderful <laughs> entertainment device that you could put into your Nintendo. Okay. Sweet, darling. Bash Brothers. But he was also in the movie version of Rent as Steve, 
the guy that sings Will I and also Life Support in the... the oh, the good songs in Rent. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, they're all good, but like those are really good. The the ones in the, the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's him. Wow. Yeah. And the other one is in Daredevil. The other one? The other Bash brother is in Daredevil. Oh, he is, isn't he? Yes. I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, a couple other fun actor facts before we get on to more history stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Max Casella played racetrack Higgins, and he was Doogie Hauser's best friend, Vinny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I wonder if they keep in touch. He's actually had, like, the most active career outside of, like, tr- Christian Bale and stuff. Yeah, outside like, of the one famous person in the cast. Like, he has made stuff, like, almost every year, mm-hmm. if not multiple things. Oh, I also mentioned, I forgot to mention uh, Bill Pullman yes. is in it as a Denton, a newspaper writer. And uh, Gabriel Damon plays Spot Conlin. He was the voice of Littlefoot. He was. From he, Land Before Time. Uh, he was also... In the episode of Star Trek. It's not a good one. <laughs> Where, like, his, his mom dies, but then she's, like, a ghost that's, like, mm-hmm. like a planet spirit as a ghost. And, and he... Worf wants to be his adopted dad. Yeah. It's not a great episode. The film was Disney's first live-action musical since Pete's Dragon in 1977. Newsies, unfortunately, was a commercial and critical flop completely. Yeah. No one liked it. <laughs> Except me! Uh, it cost $15 million to make, and it boxed Office 2.8. Um, 2.8 million gross. Yeah. Nice. That was it. It does, however, have a super strong fan base mm-hmm. and following, which did lead to the fact that they finally turned it into a musical in 2011 on Broadway, which is something I've been saying for years that should happen. I watched this movie so many times in school. Yeah. Uh, whenever my high school choir teacher was, like, taking a day off or sick or whatever, he instructed the sub to either put on Newsies or, uh, The Phantom of the Opera. Well, Newsies is the way to go. Yeah, because Phantom of the Opera is a bad movie. I'm it does sorry. have Patrick Wilson, though. I'm sorry, Emmy Rossum, you could not save it. You were but 14 or something. <laughs> yeah, so in 2011, they they turned it into a stage musical mm-hmm. uh, that premiered at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey. And the following year, it moved to Broadway. Alan Menken and Jack Feldman uh, came back. Obviously, they were using some music, but they did some rearrangements. And they added some new songs. And new lyrics to old songs. And new lyrics to old songs. We're not going to talk about the Broadway musical that much because you know what? They made some bad choices. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Harvey Firestein, who did the book. Bad choices, dude. But anyways, we're talking about history. So we got to get through this part to get to the history. Um, So they did leave out uh, two songs from the movie and they added a couple more and they did change some characters. So it cost about five million to stage and it turned a profit within seven months. It was the fastest turnaround for a profit for a Disney Broadway musical. And considering they fastest money back. That's just promotion. You know, people go see anything they know the name of. Yeah, it is true. I mean, Chicago has been running since 85 or whatever. I don't like Chicago. I don't understand. It has a few good songs. Oh, I thought you were saying it's time to move. No, (laughs) it has some good songs, but overall is like a whole... It's boring. <laughs> it's really boring. And that that movie version they made is just terrible. But we're not talking about that. We are talking about this. So the 
Broadway version uh, got eight Tony nominations, including Best Musical, and it won Best Choreography and Original Score, which it the choreography is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It is phenomenal. I uh, for the film as well. Yes. And I, I think the stage versions is even better because they're all professional dancers. Yes. And they don't get the <laughs> ability to like Hauser's friend. cut, you know. That is true. Yeah. Uh, cut away type thing. Though they did go through like a really rigorous uh, training for the movie. It was something like eight months leading up to the film that they were mm-hmm. like to, to filming that they were like training and dance and like martial arts stuff. And you still got the president from Independence Day. It's not. He's not doing those dance moves for stuff. <laughs> exactly. And also, Bill Pullman's amazing. <laughs> I love him. So it closed in August uh, 2014, and then it had a North American tour that lasted through 2016, mm-hmm. and then just. Within the past few months, they, like, had filmed the stage version and, like, showed it in movie theaters. And apparently it was really popular, so they did, like, it a second time. Sure, why not? They already paid their money. Yeah. Make more money. Let's just do it again. So, it's very interesting how a complete flop was turned into, like, a complete success. Well, 90s kids will remember that they enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 I mean, when we went... There was that girl behind me that was going crazy about Spot Conlon. And I was like, oh, girl, I know. Of, of all the tween sex symbols that Disney produced in the early 90s, he was the most human. <laughs> most. It's Spot Conlon and it's Simba, and you know I'm right. Hey, Jack is really great, too. But Spot <laughs> Conlon was better because he was, like, tougher. Yeah, there you go. Don't you mess with him. He's going like, He's gonna shoot a marble you. in your yeah. eye. Sim- Simba is still a thing. We're we're gonna dive into a bit of the actual history that All inspired right. these events. That's what this show's about, dang it. Not on the newsies first. We're gonna talk about the the newspaper giants of the time. Context. Yes. Set in the stage what before it was on the stage. We, to know about the strike, we need to know what they were striking against, who they were striking against, and that's mm-hmm. what we're gonna talk about. So we are first going to talk about... Copper mines. No. Okay. <laughs> Joseph Pulitzer. Okay. He was the publisher of the New York World, who they would eventually strike against. Uh, also, the Pulitzer of the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. Same, same person. Uh, so he was born on April 10th. Uh, That'd be a wild coincidence, though, if it wasn't, right? <laughs> if it wasn't, just like, not, not him. Not that dude. So he was born on April 10th, uh, 1847, in Hungary. Uh, he was the son of a respectable businessman. Uh, and in uh, 1858, shortly after his father's death, their business went bankrupt, and the family lost all of their money. So in 1864, Joe arrived in Boston. He was 17 years old, uh, and he had his passage passage paid for by the Massachusetts military recruiters, who needed soldiers for the Civil War. Mm -hmm. The recruiters, however, were pocketing much of his enlistment money, Mm -hmm. uh, which he found out. So he snuck away and went up to New York and then enrolled in a different regiment. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm kind of like, you could have just like snuck away and not, but he was like, no, I'm going to sneak away and I'm going to do this again. Well, he knows where to get a quick buck, and it is enlisting in the Union Army. Yes. So uh, he served for uh, in it for eight months, uh, and afterwards he went to uh, New York, but then 
soon moved back to Massachusetts uh, to try his hand in the whaling industry. But he was pretty unhappy with that, so he went back to New York and was completely broke and traveled out to St. Louis via boxcar. Joseph Pulitzer. Yeah. Was a hobo. He was a hobo. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. So he had a really hard time holding jobs out there. Uh, he Being a hobo and whatnot. <laughs> well, he wasn't, like, physically built for, like, manual labor. Like, he wasn't really, like, big enough for that. <laughs> um, and then he just had a lot of issues dealing with people. Like, he had a lot of pride. He didn't always like the situations he was put into with the jobs he was working. Um, so he hopped around positions a lot. Mm-hmm. At one point when he was in St. Louis, uh, he was conned into agreeing to go to Louisiana to work on a sugar plantation. Uh, He and a bunch of other uh, men paid a recruiter to take them by steamboat down there. But they were actually dropped like 30 miles outside of St. Louis, and the recruiters took their money Uh, and just left. You'll figure it out. It's fine. So Joe went back to St. Louis, and uh, he wrote about... This experience, this this fraud, this mm-hmm. con that he was taken into, uh, and it was published in the Westlich Post. Only the most reputable of uh, uh, periodicals. Well, it was a very um, prominent paper in the area of St. Louis he was in. There was a huge German population. It was the paper everyone mm-hmm. was reading that spoke German, which he spoke German as well. Uh, it was his first published story. After this, he worked for a while uh, for the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad recording land deeds. He did have a lot of experience with the the rails, so... Uh, In 1867, uh, he renounced his allegiance to the Austro-Hungarian Empire and became a naturalized citizen. Uh, The following year, he was admitted to the bar, became a lawyer, and had a hard time getting clients, unfortunately, because he wasn't a native English speaker, Mm-hmm. Though he did speak English, and, like, he was kind of eccentric in his look and the way he acted. He kept he, the the expensive clients away. He's the kind of lawyer they'd make a TV show about. Yeah. But long before there were TV shows, so he's just out of luck. Yeah. Later that year, the Westlich Post was looking for a reporter, and he got the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had stayed friends with some people there. Uh, over the years from when his original story had posted, and they recruited him for it. So that started his paper career. And he uh, had a flair for reporting, and he moved up through the positions. And in 1872, uh, he had enough money that he uh, purchased a share of the paper, and then very shortly after sold it for a profit. All right. So his businessman-ness is coming out. His businessman-ness, yeah. yes. Politically, uh, he joined the Republican Party, and in 1869, he was nominated to fill a vacancy in the state legislature. He was actually three years too young. But they don't have to know that, right? Come on, come on. Oh, they knew. Come on. But the Democratic opponent uh, had served in the Confederate Army, thus, like, he wasn't eligible. And even though he was too young, he won 209 to 147. So neither of them were eligible. Neither of them. Why did people even vote? They were like, you're more eligible than him. In 1872, he was a delegate to the Cincinnati Convention for the Liberal Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after its collapse, he then... I'll say. Whoa. he, He switched to the Democratic Party. Uh, and decided he was just fed up with the Republicans. 
Uh, in 1876, it's said that he gave like 70 speeches in favor of presidential candidate Samuel J. Tilden. Yeah, that that did not help in no, the long run. But 70, that's a lot. <laughs> Just going around being like, yeah. Um, in 1884, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from New York. And he served from 85 to 86, but he resigned because he wanted to focus on his paperwork. So he did marry in 1878 and had seven children. Goodness. A lot of children. In 1879, which is during all this political stuff happening, he bought the St. Louis Dispatch and the St. Louis Post, and he merged them together into one paper. The Post Patch. Now, in 1883, so within four years, he had gained so much wealth and had been doing so well with his merged papers Mm -hmm. that he was able to buy the New York World, which had been a failing paper in New York. But still, it was much more substantial than what he was dealing with. It was a big city paper. Yeah. Ho, ho, ho. To make it more successful, he focused on headline stories. Crime, disaster, scandal, and human interest. Um, He wanted to make it entertaining to read, so he had, like, contests, lots of pictures, games. Naked ladies on page three. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so it was also uh, a paper that cost two cents. And usually in the city, the other two-cent papers were, like, four pages long. Mm-hmm. They were not very big. His, however, were always, like, eight to 12 pages long. Oh, you get more bang for your buck. Yeah. Especially with that lady on page three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So his circulation grew from 15,000 to 600,000. Like <laughs> for the value conscious newspaper buyer. It was the largest newspaper in the country. <laughs> now he hired um a lot of journalists and artists that were he had twice the page count to fill. Well, ones that were also like known. Mm-hmm. Like he he hired he wasn't just taking people out of nowhere. He was he was hiring people that were known for doing stuff. Um, he also hired a lot of people that ended up becoming very famous. Uh, in 1887, uh, he hired the famous journalist, Nellie Bly. She became famous uh, for going undercover uh, and pretending she was insane and getting um, sent to the Women's Lunatic Asylum, Asylum on Blackwell Island, mm-hmm. where she uh, would later write about her, like, 10 days there and the treatment that people were experiencing, and it led to a grand jury investigation into the happenings there. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess she didn't have a very good time. She did not have a very good time. Uh, the, the, the paper was the one that actually had to get her out of there. They had to, like, appeal for her, like, don't, please, please release her to us. It's been 10 days. We want her back now. She also um, was sent around the world by the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they so she just walked around the office a few times. No. Oh, okay. They 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 wanted to try to break the round the world in eighty days thing, mm-hmm. and uh, so they they sent her off to try to do that. And some other papers decided to be in competition with her and send their own people. So it became a really big story for people to follow. Pulitzer's paper kept people interested because they also offered, like, contests to guess, Mm -hmm. like, okay, her arrival time's down to the second. You'll win prizes. You'll get this. But you have to buy the paper to find out, and you have to do this. And So they they just set up a betting pool. Yeah. (laughs) And people had to buy their papers to know what was going on. Right. So uh, her trip was actually, like, super delayed Mm -hmm. a lot. Um. But 
when she arrived um, in San Francisco, Pulitzer charted a private train to bring her straight to New Jersey. That's cheating. <laughs> and she was that she, is cheating. She did it in seventy two days, and it was the world record for the time. Yeah, she broke the record held by the fictional man. So I'm not that impressed. Well, it was broken like a couple months later by someone else, and then like multiple times again mm-hmm. and again. I guess like one of the people that another paper tried to send out like had an even worse time of it with delays <laughs> and stuff. So she was going to win no matter what. But well, yeah, what with the cheating? Yes. So that's though the type of perfect example of the type of stuff like. Pulitzer was willing to do mm-hmm. to like build up his paper to get people reading it to get more in circulation is is getting these crazy stories going to hire people who will go do these things things that led to the strike which we haven't gotten to like what led to it yet but I want to introduce someone else okay okay uh, it's not the newsies yet we have another person Hearst. Sure. Okay, so in 1882, Pulitzer's younger brother, actually, Albert, uh, founded the New York Morning Journal. Uh, It was bought by a John R. McLean in 1895, but was soon sold to William Randolph Hearst. Hearst and Pulitzer would eventually be in a war for their papers. Mm -hmm. But let's let's talk about Hearst first. Let's get there, okay? Hearst first. So he kind of has, like... Almost the opposite life of Pulitzer. Yeah. He was born a millionaire. He's a dramatic foil, is what we call that. His father was like a mining engineer and a U.S. senator and owned gold mines and stuff. A ton of money all the time. Mm -hmm. So in uh, his 20s, uh, he started managing the San Francisco Examiner, which was a paper his father got from someone who had who owed him a gambling debt. All right. So suddenly his dad had this paper, and he's like, well, someone needs to, like, manage this. I guess you can do it. What else was on the table? A mating pair of elephants. (laughs) How do you value this? (laughs) I owe you too much money. Here, just have my company. I see your grandmother's heirloom ring and raise you passes to Disneyland. (laughs) Trust me, be very patient. In a hundred years, you'll thank me. These will be worth it. (laughs) Hearst went at it with a millionaire way and hired the best of the best and Mm -hmm. bought the best of the best equipment. He he bought the dream team. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, his paper quickly became the paper of San Francisco. The way he wrote... They wrote the paper was also to draw attention. He was known for attacking companies, mm-hmm. uh, for publishing stories of corruption, even ones against companies that, like, his family owned. Well, that's how you get the good information. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, it's that information. Let me just write this out. People want to read this and buy my paper. Uh, it is said that Hearst uh, was a fan of the world and uh, wanted to make the examiner just as exciting. Mm-hmm. So he was copying copying what Pulitzer was doing. I know you mean the paper, but that sounds like the most hollow statement. I'm just a fan of the world. Like, <laughs> shut up. Yes, he is. He is a fan <laughs> of the world. Uh, that's going to happen a lot. We're just going to keep talking about the world, the journal, and the world. The world will know. And the journal, too. Mr. Hertz and Pulitzer, have we got news for you? I'm not rising to this bait. We have work. <laughs> 
why can't we sing? <laughs> so in 1895, with the help of his mother, uh, who financially supported him, he bought the New York Mor- Morning Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, from this chain of people that from s- stretch back to Pulitzer's little bro. Yes, from the guy who bought it from Pulitzer's brother. Yeah. Which I think is just like the best fact of it, is that like this was his brother's paper, even though it was failing. It was like, now, now the guy you are going to hate... With all the hatred, got it from your family member. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he he bought this paper, and it brought him right into a circulation war with Pulitzer. Hearst did several things that made this happen. His paper cost one cent instead of two cents, but he offered as much news as the world did. All right. Who's paying anybody for anything? <laughs> Are they skimping on the cheap ink or or something? I don't exactly know how their finances worked, okay? This quickly allowed, though, the journal to grow in circulation Mm -hmm. up to 150,000 very quickly. Now, Mm -hmm. it's still a fraction of what, like, Pulitzer's was, but... Right. And it was only going to grow from there. So that made Pulitzer cut his paper down to a cent as Mm -hmm. well. And then Hearst went after Pulitzer's staff. And started offering them more money to come to him. I don't know where the money came from. <laughs> he has a rich mom. Yeah, okay. Thank you, mother. Uh, people he hired, also, inc- one of the people included uh, Richard F. Outcult. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1895, Richard created a comic called The Yellow Kid Comic. Had a character that was like a snaggletoothed, bald-headed, barefoot kid in a yellow nightshirt. Mm-hmm. And he was known for hanging around poor areas, the slums. Uh, it was a part of a bigger comic that was called Hogan's Alley's Cartoons, and they were published in a magazine. Richard was working for the world at the time. Right. And the comics became very popular in this magazine, so Pulitzer uh, published them a couple times in his paper. And then it became a full-page Sunday color cartoon with... Uh, the yellow kid leading the way in the comic. Right. And their Sunday, uh, the Sunday papers that they did, they weren't like regular newspapers. They were much more like a magazine. There was a lot more in it. It was a lot more about entertainment. And he he used them to invent the Sunday comics. Yes. Yes. The, nice. This is This is where like the Sunday comics kind of come from. And this, this person, uh, Richard, had a lot to do with that. Uh, Hearst comes in and... 1896, and offered Richard a heck of a lot more money, and he moved to the journal. Pulitzer was really, like, not going to deal with this, so he hired a different artist to continue the character. Mm-hmm. So you have the same character happening in both the journal and the world, but different storylines happening at the same time. Now, Richard's character who moved to the journal was more popular. Well, yeah. But... Pulitzer was still trying to be like, nope, he's in my paper. <laughs> so intellectual property is a minefield, folks. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of uh, tension there. Their papers were very similar. Oh, they were co- <laughs> like you know, Hearst is copying him, but they were also very like cutthroat with what they were trying to do. So it gave to the rise of yellow journalism. 
you know, how can they get eye-catching headlines to sell more papers? Very little researched stories, exaggerating things, using scare tactics, giving a lot of sympathy to the underdog, uh, false experts in interviews, very much clickbait. Just clickbait of the time. These five government regulations will kill your grandmother. Yes. All right. Yes. Number like, four will like, blow your mind. Per- perfect example from the movie. <laughs> from the movie, they they start shouting out like Ellis Island in flames. Thousands flee in panic. There there was a trash fire at the immigration building and a lot of terrified seagulls. There you go. There you go. Straight from the movie, right there. Perfect example. <laughs> Uh, yellow jur- journalism was coined around the time with what they were doing. But how did they come up with that name? Where did that come from? It's debated a bit because people used either the term yellow journalism, the school of the yellow kid, or yellow kid journalism. So automatically you want to say, yeah, the yellow kid comic right there. They're fighting over it. And, and those weren't the only two papers featuring yellow kid comics there there were others yeah. in this scene that got their own artists to do their own knockoffs yep that kid was very popular yes he was he just started traveling everywhere there are some people that try to argue like no that's not what it is and i'm like how can it not be that <laughs> you, um a few other ways the papers were similar is that they did show sympathy to uh labor workers mm-hmm which is kind of funny. Uh, immigrants, uh, they were both Democratic, and as I mentioned, their Sunday publications were huge. Yeah. Well, you, you have to play to the people with pennies, because if, if you have an affordable product, you want to play to the masses. Like, they're not advertising yachts in this. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it's about volume. So, how, how does this come back to the Newsies? How is this all relevant? Mm-hmm. Well, how, how do we get to a strike? So one thing to know is before Newsies existed, before Newsies were a thing, they weren't always a thing being used in circulation. Uh, Newspapers, you either had to buy at a store or you had to subscribe. Mm -hmm. So the paper was brought to you. Newsies came about and they were a way to make papers easily accessible. They completely drove the circulation of these newspapers. And subscriptions still existed. Um, Some Newsies actually worked subscription routes along with selling papers along the way. Right. This bag is going to these addresses, and on my other hip are ones I can just sell while I'm I'm walking. Yeah. Yeah. Newsies were not employees of the newspapers. They, They were not paid by them. What Newsies had to do was they had to buy the papers Mm -hmm. and then go sell them. So they had they had to invest in this. And whatever they didn't sell they couldn't return. They were just out of the money. Mm-hmm. So Newsies worked all day. They worked until they could sell their last paper. They were out they, all hours of the night trying to get someone to take it. Self-employed. Yeah. And everything that comes with that. <laughs> and so, so yeah, they, they burdened all of the risk. Yes. And they were incredibly poor. Like, they did not make much money. It was said that they pr- maybe made like 30 cents a day. Maybe. Mm-hmm. If it was, like, a good day, they would make 30 cents. They had to pay, the typical price for newspapers was 50 cents for 100. Mm-hmm. So in a day, they weren't even making enough to buy the next day's papers. Well, that seems like a system that's not sustainable. <laughs> it's not very great. So in 1898, 
the Spanish-American War was happening, and the the war increased paper sales. Mm-hmm. There were lots of headlines. There were special editions coming out. So publishers raised the cost of papers to the newsies. So instead of like 50 cents a hundred, it was now 60 cents mm-hmm. or similar, but usually around that. Um, the price increase wasn't terribly bad on the newsies because people wanted papers so much that they were able to sell tons more than they were. They made up for it on, on the other end. Yeah. Uh, the demand was so high that it wasn't a problem. They sold everything. They didn't have to worry about having things left over. There was always more papers coming out that they could sell. Once the war ended, the paper demand went back to normal, and all the papers put their price back down, except for two. The World and the Journal. They kept it at 60 cents a hundred. Mm-hmm. So, in the movie... It's shown that one day Pulitzer just decides to raise the price. Before the strike, this was actually like a few months from when all the other papers dropped the price to when the strike started. Because mm-hmm. then things started to set in and they were right. like, "This we can't afford this. Took time to reach the breaking point. Yes. Um, and to organize and all this other stuff I'm sure you're about to tell me. Yes. <laughs> One thing to know is that the summer in New York was actually, like, very much, like, a striking summer. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of other strikes going on. There there's, was... There's the summer of love, the summer of strikes. This, this was the summer of strikes, yes. Maybe one episode we'll get to the summer of Sam, but that's not really our bag. <laughs> yeah. So, a couple ones that were happening, there's the uh, the Messenger Boys of Manhattan were having a strike. Uh, the railroad trolley workers were striking. Uh, there was a bunch of other stuff going on. It was it was kind of in the air. The Newsies uh, officially went on strike. Some say July twentieth. Some say July twenty first. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I think it kind of depends on how you want to draw the line of what's official and what is like the starting point. So let me guess then that it was like declared on the twentieth, and the twenty first is the day. It, it was the first day they stopped buying papers. They had several days leading up where they were in talks about this. They were mm-hmm. planning this. Um, the Typically, most people say the 21st because that is when they, like, stopped buying papers and they also started going after newspaper sellers and yeah. other things and stopped letting other people sell. The 20th, there uh, are some accounts that they stopped selling papers for Pulitzer and Hearst. Mm-hmm. Like, that evening. They didn't do the evening paper. They were selling through the day, right. but they didn't do the evening one. Um, but they didn't do anything to make anyone else stop. Now, one thing to note is that they didn't stop selling papers for other newspapers. It was just the, the It was just World Pulitzer and the Hearst. Yeah. yeah. The World and the Journal were the only two. Because people got to get their yellow kid. They just get the other knockoffs, well, the other not, ones not the real one or the first knockoff. They weren't charging them 10 extra cents. <laughs> So July 21st was, like, the day that they didn't sell any papers at all, and they started to attack the delivery wagons, the not let papers go to the stores. Right. Um, they, they stopped distribution from happening in other places. Now, the strike lasted two weeks. That's a nice dramatic arc there. You, you have an intermission in two weeks. <laughs> You've got your rising action, your falling action, a reprise somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. perfect. Now I'm not, I want you to sing a song in my head. So within these two weeks, there were accounts of people being arrested, violence, 
vandalism to paper wagons and stuff like that. Of All course. the good stuff. Uh, there were demonstrations, um, some demonstrations across the Brooklyn Bridge a few times where they like completely stopped any type of traffic from going across it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also mass meetings. And they had founded the Newsboy, Newsboy Strike Committee, and they were leading up the strike. One thing that's interesting, because this is only like a two-week time period we're dealing with, mm-hmm. so they started the strike committee, and within a couple days, they voted members off the strike committee because they thought they went behind their back and turned against the union. A lot can happen in a, a few days. A lot can happen in a few this, days. This is the city that never sleeps. They have eight extra hours to do things. Yeah. So, which we'll we'll get into some of the people in the actual committee in a minute. So, one thing that's also different in the history compared to, like, what we see in the movie and musical is that Pulitzer and Hearst were negotiating with the Newsies. Yeah. They, they wanted their distribution to keep going. At one point, they offered to drop it down to 55 cents a hundred. Meet them halfway. Meet them halfway, uh, which the committee refused. They did, however, uh, start going behind the committee's back. Mm -hmm. And they were having their circulation managers talk directly to the newsies. And they didn't offer a price reduction, but they offered a 100% buyback policy. Uh, Taking that risk back on the newspaper company. Yes. And off of these self-employed children. Yes. So the new the committee was like, no, we don't want to do this. But the newsies are like, heck yes, we're going back to work. <laughs> and that is actually what ended the strike, is that the newsies all just went back to work on August 2nd because and agreed to this buyback huh. policy. They got no more money. No other negotiations happened at that point. They were just like, cool. But yeah, they, they didn't have to eat their costs. Yes, they they weren't taking such a risk anymore. They mm-hmm. could buy extra papers and just be like, well, if I don't sell them, at least I'll get my money back. Yeah. It's very interesting because we don't, we don't see that. It's sort of the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite that happens. Yeah. They focus on the money aspect of getting, uh, dropping it back down. We also aren't seeing like the compromise happen or like offer mm-hmm. offers. It's more of like blackmail. It's also very interesting that the Newsies actually were like, nope, strike committee, we're doing our own thing. (laughs) Here's the problem with trying to tell this story, is that there's really not a lot of written record about what happened with this strike or the people involved. Well, because it would have been in the newspapers. Would have been in the newspapers. And And obviously, there are, like, newspaper articles you can find. Mm Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily going to go into great detail. They, they have a vested interest in taking sides. Yes. Also, Newsies weren't writing memoirs about this. They weren't <laughs> writing scholarly articles about what they did. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, it, it was a big uh, movement for them. It was something they were going up against some of the richest people in New York City. That is true. These companies. But... It only lasted two weeks. It wasn't, like, <laughs> months and months and months. Right. Um, and then they just went back to work. So a lot of information gets lost, uh, especially when we want to start looking at who they really were. The, the individuals. Yes. And with the movie and musical... You need individuals. You need people to cast. Yes. But you also fall into the fact of people having a hard time 
separating fact and fiction. Mm-hmm. And you get into a lot of people where I think they really just want to hope that these people were actually real. <laughs> so there's a lot of digging that had to happen. Christian Bale's character, Jack Kelly, is the strike leader. He did not exist <laughs> at all. There is a record of a Jack Sullivan mm-hmm. who was mentioned in one paper as someone who did speak to the crowd, but he doesn't appear really again in newspaper articles. He was not the one quoted as a speaker again. He's just a kid who had something to say once. Yes. All right, cool. Uh, there are some people who have found like some pictures of him from newspapers and stuff. It seems like he was there, but he thought not in what we think from the character. Hardly the central organizing figure. Yeah. <laughs> now, the newsie that is often associated in actual history as a leader uh, is Kid Blink, which is a character in the movie. And has a heck of a name. Because he he's the one with the eye patch. He has the eye patch. He has the eye patch. Now, he did exist. He's real. He did exist. So in the movie, he's a minor character. Definitely not the leader. In real life, was considered the like one of the chief organizers of the strike committee. Uh, he's written about in a lot of newspapers. Part of this is because he had a very strong accent. And the newspapers like to write his words phonetically. Just for funsies? Just for funsies. (laughs) So there's the question of, like, how much of a leader was he and how much was it just the newspapers wanting to use him speaking over someone else? What accent did he have? I think it was just a really strong Brooklyn accent, if I remember correctly. Yeah. New York accent, though. So, like, every other sentence was, hey, I'm walking here. Sure. Sure. Now, he is one of the ones that was removed from the strike committee within a couple days. Oh, naughty boy. Which is why he, like, really is not a leader. Because they uh, thought he betrayed the union and was turning into a scab. Mm -hmm. There's some records that state there are many signs that actually that was true after they kicked him off. I think one of the funniest things is that he was like... Walking down the street one day after this, a bunch of the other newsies came upon him, and they were really angry, so there was a big fight, mm-hmm. and the cops came. They arrested everyone, including him, even though, like, all these other kids attacked him. They were like, no, you're coming with us, too. They they would not listen to him, though. They was like, no, they're all attacking me. They're like, no, you were attacking, you guys were all attacking someone else. Well, they would listen to him, but he had such a thick accent. So other newsies that uh, did exist but are not in the movie uh, was Dave Simmons. Uh, He was originally president of the committee and was also removed for turning against the union. Mm -hmm. Someone named Little Mikey, Jim Gady, Barney Peanuts. Barney Peanuts. Barney Peanuts. Oh, Barney Peanuts is my next D&D character. Yeah, Barney Peanuts. Yes. (laughs) Can he have like a circus peanut hat? (laughs) Okay, Barney Peanuts is my next mouse guard character. There we go. Crutch Morris, who many people uh, say inspired Crutchy, but there's really not a lot about him other than the fact that, like, yeah, he probably had a crutch, but, like, there's nothing about personality or what he did or anything. Well, that's all it takes to inspire the character of Crutchy. I guess, I guess. There was also someone named Skabooch. Skabooch? Skabooch. I've never tried Skabooch. I don't think I'd like it. I'm yeah. just not into tea generally. Is it, this is tea? Yeah, it's that hippie tea. Skabooch? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, there's also someone named Abe Newman. My name is Larry Normalman. <laughs> so when Kid Blink and Dave Simmons were removed, um, the Newsies elected a real adult as a president because like let's remember these are all like children yeah maybe teenagers and they they decided you know what we need to elect a real adult to get things done i need supervision (laughs) you're you look like an adulty adult can you president for us uh and racetrack higgins became vice president now racetrack is a character in the movie he is doogie hauser's best friend yeah yeah now, he's really seen as the real voice of Brooklyn, not Spot Conlon, as shown in the movie, but Spot is a real person. Uh, and he is also mentioned as, like, a, a master, like, work boy of Brooklyn, just not, like, the voice of Brooklyn. Nice. Yeah. So that's... Um, I'd like to be called a work boy. A work boy, yeah. Yeah. Get to work boy? That's, it sounds dirty when you say it like that. Go clean the bathroom, boy. <laughs> I mean, it needs to be done. Yeah, so those are the newsies we know about. There's not a lot more about them. I was slightly disappointed in researching this episode. I really wanted more. It seems like the sort of thing you could hang a show on is just this skeleton and you just fill it up with whatever. Nobody's going to say you're wrong because they can't prove it. I'm just shocked that there's not like books about this <laughs> there's a ton of people online that have like researched this stuff for a hobby mm-hmm. and like various uh and... i came across like someone's uh like graduate thesis <laughs> and i'm like how have you not like published this into a real book <laughs> come on there's you know the question of what what happened after what happened yeah. after the strike what happened we we do know that the the newsies went back to work what happened to all of them after that don't really know I'm going to guess organized crime. Some of them probably died. <laughs> Maybe me- Being malnourished. Yeah. Not being able to sell all their papers. The First World War. That could do it, too. Now, it is said that they may have inspired other strikes in other parts of the country, both of newsboys and other people, but it's hard to say because we don't really have quotes. <laughs> The the newspapers didn't want to do a follow-up with, like, five years later. Where are they now? Where are those people that gave us such a hard time? (laughs) In the coming years uh, after the strike, uh, Pulitzer's health did decline. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do know about the rich people. We know what happened to them. Well, yeah. Uh, They're the important ones, after all. So in 1907, he resigned, and one of his sons took over, and he died in 1911. Uh, He left... $2 million in his will to Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And in 1912, they founded the Graduate School of Journalism. And in 1917, they organized the awards for the first Pulitzer Prize in journalism. The final issue of The World was printed in 1913. So it sounds like his son is really bad at running newspapers. Yeah, it didn't last very long. All right, cool, cool. Her so there could be a whole episode on this man. He's freaking crazy in his later life he opened uh many more papers Mm -hmm. he was elected to congress he tried to become mayor of new york and governor of new york and those did not happen he tried multiple times uh in the 1930s his political views completely like 180 Mm -hmm. and he became ultra conservative 
a nationalist, anti-communist, and anti-Roosevelt. So he became an American Nazi Lindbergh style. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if um, you didn't know that about Charles Lindbergh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, he died in 1951, uh, but the paper did keep existing until the 1960s. And I guess his kid's not that great at it either. <laughs> well, he's pro- I think he was out of uh, commission there for a while. Now, there, his whole political thing, his 180... There is so much that could be said about that, but we are we're focusing on the newsies and <laughs> this, look into Hearst. He's a crazy <laughs> man. So yeah, that uh, that was the my episode where I tried to research my favorite musical of all time and just didn't go quite as planned. <laughs> I'm sorry, dear. I hope it was slightly interesting. I hope you learned something, even if it wasn't about newsies, but maybe well, about rich men. I I think. <laughs> I think really this episode teaches a lesson of historiography more than history, just that it's a question of who gets remembered and how mm-hmm. and in how much detail. Yeah. Like for the people who performed this uh, uh, act to stand up for, for their rights and their livelihood, they have a name in a few places and maybe a picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the individuals who uh, worked against them and eventually with them again. I'm, I'm sure there's a record somewhere of everything uh, a Pulitzer ate for breakfast in his entire life. I can tell you what the Newsies ate, leftover newspapers. <laughs> Thanks, Pulitzer. If it wasn't for the fact that the Newsies movie and musical exists... Mm-hmm. Would people have any clue that the Newsboys strike ever happened? And I think the answer is no. No, yeah. There is absolutely, there's barely any information out there. And most of it connects back to the fact that these things in media exist. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets it going. I've, I've been working with children and ex- introducing them to Newsies. And just the disconnect they have from, like, knowing that this was a job that kids even did. <laughs> like, these 10-year-olds have no idea that this was yeah. a thing. Now, I was, like, a crazy historical fiction child who, like, read everything about everything. So I'm, like, shocked that they didn't know this because I knew this forever. But it does make me wonder, like, if this didn't exist, would we – would I even be having this conversation with these children right now about child labor and, you know, strikes and be able to – being able to connect them so easily to it. Right, you know, right. And it's obviously a compelling story uh, as thin as the details are, or else Kenny Ortega and Bob Sudiker wouldn't have had anything to work with. It, it would have been yeah. an original story, I guess. Yeah. Possibly about a high school that puts on a musical. <laughs> We're going to get to this, to another example later in our letters, but it is... An interesting thought that um, examples like this play out so many times that they build their own tropes, they build their own like paint by numbers drama. Mm-hmm. And so, in some cases, some of these forgotten or near forgotten uh, episodes of history only live on through their um, pop culture mythology. Yeah, it's very true. There's a lot of people that don't know about the Edmund Fitzgerald, but we talked about this before. 
that song without Gordon Lightfoot. Without Gordon Lightfoot, it's, it's who would just know? A boat that sank once, but he made it become this legend <laughs> in a way that just knowing the story did it. Mm-hmm. Like, if it has a song about it, it means something. So if you get a whole musical about what happens, then it means about fourteen, fifteen things. <laughs> yeah, that's an album worth. I guess since I teased it, we're going to take a quick break and be back with those letters and other fun stuff. Okay. Hey folks, this is Grant just dropping in because while I was editing that last bit, I remembered that I forgot to deliver on the promise and say what that other uh, example I was being coy about was. Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables is mostly set in the 1832 June Rebellion in Paris, which was basically a, a total failure and is such a minor blip on the historical radar that the novel actually our best historical source for what happened because actual like capital H historians didn't really care that much. So thanks for letting me correct that, that little oversight and uh, please uh, wish my wife luck with resisting what, whatever curse or hex has stolen her voice away. So here's the rest of the show proper. Welcome back, everybody. We got some wonderful letters from folks like y'all. Yes, we did. So uh, the first one we're going to read is from Joanne, uh, who just finished listening to our Cubs episode and had some uh, personal stories to share. Now, Steve Goodman, who we, we brought up because he wrote Go Cubs Go, uh, wrote a less optimistic Cubs song called A Dying Cubs Fan's Last Request. <laughs> and according with his wishes wishes that are even in the lyrics of that song, his ashes are sprinkled at Wrigley Field. Joanne's grandfather was a diehard Cubs fan. Uh, For years, on every game day afternoon after lunch, he'd retire to the bedroom and watch the game on TV while listening to the radio. But when she was in high school, uh, Joanne designed and cross-stitched a little pillow to hang on his Cubs watching door, which is just very sweet. Yeah. So thank you, Joanne. First time writer in, uh, Cool sent us an email, and their favorite painting is The Night Watch, uh, a painting by Rembrandt. Um, and it's not because it's a spectacular painting, um, but because they liked a song that focused on it, and it caused them to research it and connect the piece to their Dutch heritage, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, Cool also wrote us about their favorite musicals. They aren't ones that are based on historical happenings. But uh, still good to share anyways. Uh, La La Land and Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain is wonderful. I completely agree with you there. And hey, it's historical now. Yes. It's it's quite (laughs) old. So Thanks, cool. Chris sent us an email. Uh, Favorite musicals for them based on historical events are Hamilton, uh, which they feel is a bit cliche now, but no, you Everyone can like Hamilton. It's always a good. Uh, other one is Les Mis. My favorite painting uh, is the coronation of Napoleon. So thank you for writing in, Chris. Thank you. Uh, Will writes in to say he's another creepy H.R. Giger fan, you weirdo. 
Uh, but also he loves everything Roger Dean puts out uh, with his talent for beautifully bizarre fantasy landscapes. Will doesn't have a favorite uh, historical play, uh, but he does have a least favorite, Life of Galileo, which is about exactly what it says. Uh, he was a bartender for an amateur theater company that put it on, and they didn't do such a great job, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, yeah, Brecht is tricky. It's tricky stuff. So, yeah. Thanks for writing in, though. Well, Blumen's favorite painting was Picasso's Guernica. Uh, it's just so odd and kind of silly looking uh, when he was young. and But years later, when he learned the context uh, behind the picture and World War I, all these suffering faces and deformed geometry really jumped out and, and took on a new meaning. Uh, Blumen's favorite play or musical based on historical events, Les Miserables. Oh, yeah. And yeah, Blumen, you, you are right in your guess. It's going to come up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he has a personal connection because he played the role of uh, Javert during his school's uh, production. Nice. That's a good part. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Blumen. Every part's good except Cosette. Yeah. You, Cosette. <laughs> Uh, Caitlin wrote us uh, that their favorite play based on a true story is The Boy from Oz. I am so, so incredibly jealous that you got to see Hugh Jackman play the lead from The Boy from Oz. That is like one of those things that if I could go back in time, <laughs> I would see. The fact that you were also 20 meters from the stage is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. Kieran writes in to do a little bit of catch-up. Uh, his favorite painter is Artemisia uh, Gentilici, a Renaissance painter born in 1593. Uh, she was known for bringing a, a sense of reality to her uh, biblical and historical subjects, drawing on her own life experiences, which is why she painted a lot of women from the Bible who did violent and and powerful things, but with just this sense of brutality uh, overcoming their oppressors that most painters of the day, male painters of the day, didn't really imbue in the same subjects. Yeah. So if you want to see her Susanna and the Elders compared to everyone else's uh, version of that same story from the Book of Daniel, then you'll, you'll see a pretty stark contrast. You can also see a whole article Kieran wrote about uh, Artemisia Gentilici uh, at headstuff.org, where he writes pretty often. Yeah. Uh, for this episode's prompt, uh, Kieran recommends Murder in the Cathedral, T.S. Eliot's play based on the murder of Archbishop Thomas Beckett on the orders of King Henry II in 1170. Uh, it was written in 1935, and... Uh, it's just as much about the rise of fascism and people's individual response to central authority as it is about Archbishop Thomas Beckett. So thank you, Kieran. Chrissy writes in uh, to say her favorite historical-based uh, musical or play is Gypsy, uh, the biographical uh, uh, musical about Gypsy Rose Lee, the burlesque performer. Uh, she also writes in to say uh, how much she's enjoying Riverdale and... Uh, uh, especially our podcast, Sex Archie. Yeah. <laughs> and that she is as well upset about what happened to Tim Drake in, in a lot of cases. <laughs> so thank you, Chrissy. Anton wrote in that their favorite. 
Ben's favorite painting is Closing the Loop by Simon Stalinhag. Uh, the style mixes the real with an alternative past uh, that gives uh, rise to some really cool, striking pictures. Um, favorite superhero, uh, Elijah Snow from Warren Ellis. And John Cassidy's uh, Planetary. Planetary is great. That is a good recommendation. Uh, favorite future. Catching up on a lot of top, uh, past prompts. The one where we all live in super tall skyscrapers and get to work via balloons with propellers on them. That would sound pretty cool. <laughs> that is a retro, retro future. I Let dig it. Let me just hop in my balloon and <laughs> go to the grocery store. Yeah, thanks, Anton. Final Gamer writes in to thank us for our uh, Jim Henson episode, finally getting them to sit down and watch The Dark Crystal, which they enjoyed. Oh, yay! Like all right-thinking people. Yes. And as a birthday gift to you, dear, sent some pictures of Great Danes. Yay! Puppies! Big puppies! <laughs> really big puppies. Uh, their favorite puppet was the Sooty Gang from the Sooty & Co. series that ran in Britain from the 60s to present. British kids shows have a lot of puppets I ain't never heard of. Yeah. We don't get to watch those. I guess. Those weren't in uh, rotation here. But they also ask a question. Was the Mayor Daly you mentioned in the Michigan Avenue podcast the same Mayor Daly that made a colossal screw-up of Meigs Field and its airport? No. Richard J. Daly, who was mayor during the, the 60s and other time besides, uh, was the father of Richard M. Daly, the one you're asking about. Yes. Our recently retired mayor, who uh, was replaced by Rahm Emanuel. Ugh. <laughs> and, Ugh. and that's all there is to say about him. Thanks, Final Gamer. Uh, James wrote in that their favorite musical based on reality is Hamilton, but... They haven't seen it, so they'll go with Memphis, a musical loosely based on the life of Dewey Phillips. Uh, tells the story of Huey Calhoun and how he brought uh, black music to America. I like that Hamilton is everybody's second choice. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say this, but that's okay. I mean, it means like you could like that, but still have like other mm -hmm. ones that you feel you'd like to mention. It's um, been a year and a half, I think. The, the big wave, and then the anti-wave have both sort of faded away, so now we can be honest about Hamilton. I will settle on an opinion after June when we finally see it. <laughs> there is that. Oh, uh, James has a painting story for us. Yeah. Uh, when they were... A, when, oh, when he dad... Oh, sorry. So uh, when his dad was a kid, he went on a family vacation, and on their way to... Their destination, uh, they came across a Norman Rockwell painting, and they wanted to get it. Uh, the parents said that they'll get it on the way back because it was kind of cheap, and uh, they didn't want to cut into their vacation money. Uh, but Norman Rockwell died while they were on vacation, so when they came back, they couldn't afford it anymore because the price went up. <laughs> oh, dear. Too bad. That's very sad. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Uh, Chibs writes in to uh, share a bit of her personal history. Uh, she's descended uh, from Zhou Guangzhou, a 16th century scholar in uh, the Joseon Kingdom. Uh, he, he was an honored Conf Confucian martyr uh, who was exiled for talking down the class system and trying to establish a modified form of government and other things that sort of undermined the king's authority. 
Uh, he, he talked too much and got executed for his trouble. So Chibs comes from some pretty interesting stock. Yeah, that's <laughs> some cool family history. Uh, she has some requests for upcoming episodes that we'll definitely keep in mind. And uh, also answers uh, our historical play prompt mm-hmm. by saying, on one hand, Hamilton, but on the other, Jeb, an American disappointment. A parody of Hamilton about Jeb Bush's uh, failed primary campaign. That's kind of amazing. Uh, honorable mentions for uh, uh, a bit more classical works, Cyrano de Bergerac and Macbeth, mm. uh, based on fictionalized versions of real people. Those are good picks, too. Yeah. Thanks, Chibs. Eric sent us an email uh, saying that they and their wife just love our podcasts, uh, listening to both History Honeys and Sex Archie, and uh, name drop our podcasts to mm-hmm. friends, whatever they can get. That is being a good listener. My wife and I also love History Honeys and Sex Archie. Yes. We have so much in common. We do! <laughs> um... His wife's favorite uh, musical based on reality is Gypsy, and Eric's is Chicago. I'm sorry, I trash talk Chicago a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for, for praying every night that my cult predictions in Sex Archie come true. I hope they do as mm-hmm. well. So thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, so that concludes all of the letters we have to read for this episode. Uh-huh. If people want to send us letters, they can send them to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, so you can send us questions, comments. We got a few topic requests these past few weeks. Uh-huh. And of course, there's always answering the uh, mail prompts. Yeah. Do you have a prompt for next time? People have been so nice about sending pictures of their dogs. I would like to hear uh, people's favorite historically significant dogs. What the hell are you going to talk about? Yeah, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> I'm so curious now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, send us your historically, your, your favorite dogs from history. Pictures are welcome. <laughs> of course. But while you're getting in touch with us through email, there's always Facebook, there's Instagram, there's Twitter. Uh-huh. And we are at History Honeys on all of those. Yes, we are. And if you're wondering why I'm why I'm saying all the things Elena usually says, <laughs> just listen to how she sounds. It's not working. It's so hard to talk, you guys. But while you're feeling in a chatty mood, why not chat to others? Help us uh, uh, grow and develop. Leaving us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you find us goes a long, long way. Uh-huh. And also, word of mouth. Tell your own fiancé what uh, has got you sharing all all these interesting facts over dinner. Why not tell your ATM? It won't do anything, (laughs) but it sounds like fun. Eh, Someone might be hacking the camera. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, your your friends, your family, your coworkers, just whoever you think might be interested in fun facts and fun folks. Yeah. And maybe someone that will be able to talk again in their life. This might be my last episode ever. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I've got a couple of quick plugs. I was recently on Alka Hollywood again, this time talking about uh, Warcraft, the 2016 film about the video game. <laughs> I'm also involved in producing an actual play podcast that is a show where we tell stories by playing tabletop role-playing games. Just this weekend, we launched a new uh, long-term campaign uh, in the Mouse Guard system, 
which is really cool and really fun. So I'd appreciate it if you just uh, give it a look and see what you think. You can also listen to our other podcast, Sex Archie, and find mm-hmm. out what we're talking about about these cults in the woods. So yeah, be like Eric. Be like Eric and Chrissy. They know what's up. I'm Grant. And I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.